Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author Genevieve Gornacek, who joined me to talk about her recent novel The Witch's Heart, a story set in the time of the ancient Norse myths and centred around the enigmatic witch Angerboda, who is crucial to the cataclysmic events of Ragnarok, but only features briefly in the narrative we know from the prose and poetic Eddas. In the interview, I talked with Genevieve about how she reimagined Angerboda from her traditional counterpart, and focused on some of the lesser-known characters from Norse mythology when telling her story. We also discussed the insights that can be gained into the nature of gods and supernatural beings from writing a story about them, and exploring their ontology through the imagination, and how that might help us understand the paranormal experiences and high strangeness reported across the world in more modern times. This episode begins with a reading from The Witch's Heart, and was recorded in May of this year. Enjoy! Long ago, when the gods were young and Asgard was new, there came a witch from the edge of the worlds. She knew many ancient spells, but she was especially skilled with Seid, a magic that allowed one to travel out of body and divine the future. This greatly appealed to Odin, the highest of the Aesir. When he learned of her abilities, he offered to impart upon the witch his knowledge of the runes in exchange for teaching him Seid. She was uncertain at first, She'd heard enough about Odin to make her hesitate, but she knew he did not share his secrets lightly, which meant her knowledge of Seid must be of great value to him indeed. So she swallowed her suspicions about this grim one-eyed god and accepted his offer. As they practiced together, the witch found herself drawn farther down than she'd ever travelled before, where she brushed against a place darker than the beginning of time itself. This place frightened her, and the secrets contained there were great and terrible, so she did not dare go deeper, much to Odin's displeasure, for the knowledge he saw above all else was hidden there, and it seemed to him that only she could reach it. The witch was also teaching her magic to the Aesir's rivals, the Vanir, a sister race of gods whose home she had passed through on her way to Asgard. The Vanir could think of naught but gold, with which to reward the witch for her services though she cared little enough for it. But when Odin realised she was travelling between Asgard and Vanaheim, he saw an opportunity. He turned the Aesir against the witch and called her Gulvig, Goldlust. They drove spears through her and burnt her three times, and three times she was reborn, for she was very old, very hard to kill, and far more than she appeared. Each time she burned, Odin tried to force her down to the dark place to learn what he wanted to know, and each time she resisted. And when the Vanir heard of the Aesir's treatment of her, they became furious, and thus was the first war in the cosmos declared. The third time she was reborn, Gulveig fled, where she left something behind, her speared heart still smoking on the pyre. That was where he found it. Sometime later, he tracked her to the deepest, darkest forest at the farthest edge of Jotunheim, the land of the giants, the Aesir's bitter enemies. This forest was called Ironwood, 
where the gnarled grey trees were so thick that there was no real path through them, and so tall that they blocked out the sun. He did not have to venture into those woods, though, for by the bank of the river that divided Ironwood from the rest of Jotunheim, he found the witch, staring across the water at the dense forest and mountains beyond. She sat upon a rough woollen blanket, with a thick cloak about her shoulders, and a hood pulled over her head. The sun was shining, but she sat in the shade, hands folded in her lap, leaning against a tree trunk. He watched her for a time, shifting from foot to foot, scratching his nose, listening to the quaint gurgling of the river and the whistling of songbirds. Then he sauntered up to her, his hands clasped behind his back. He could see only the bottom half of her face, but her skin looked pink, tender, healing, new. When he got closer, he noticed the skin of her hands was the same. She seemed to be resting peacefully. Part of him didn't want to disturb her. Then again, he'd always found the idea of peace to be quite boring. How long are you going to stand there? She rasped. She sounded like she hadn't had anything to drink in an age and a half. He figured that breathing in the smoke from one's own pyre three times would have that effect on a person. You're a difficult woman to find, he replied. Truth be told, he wasn't sure how to proceed. He'd come to return what she'd left in Odin's hall, and for something more, though he didn't know exactly what. Something had drawn him to Ironwood that day, with her heart tucked into his haversack, and he had a feeling that whatever was pulling him down this path was important, was special, was interesting, for he was so very easily bored. And now here he was, enticed by the possibility of some excitement, and hoping the witch would not disappoint. Genevieve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I really enjoyed The Witch's Heart. It's a great book. The central character is Angerboda. Uh, was she always going to be the, the main character for this story? Absolutely. She was what first kind of drew me um, to kind of getting really into Norse mythology. She's a character that we don't really know a whole lot about. So there's a lot of ways that the story could have been written. And this is just kind of my take. So, Excellent. So, um, yeah, just, just for people who might not know who Angerboda is from the, the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda, who is this character? So uh, Angerboda is a giantess. She is the mother of Hel, the giant wolf Fenrir, and the great serpent, the Midgard serpent Jormungand, or Jormungandr, um, with the trickster god Loki. And that's pretty much all we know. <laughs> right, okay. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, for, for, for a character where there isn't a lot of information in the source material, you've managed to tell a, a, a compelling story that sheds light on that world. Um, uh, but I, one thing I noticed is that uh, Angerboda in the book has a past uh, as, as, as another character, Gulveig. Yeah, Gulveig. Was that always the intent for the character in your book to have these other, other lives, other personalities to, to kind of flesh her out? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, that was my whole approach when I went to write the book because I started, I, I wrote the whole thing <laughs> in uh, the first draft at least in three weeks for National Novel Writing Month back in 2011. Uh, I was at university and I was taking a course on Norse mythology. And during the course of this course, um, I kind of, I got really intrigued by the idea that some of the more mysterious women in the myths might be all connected because they share similar associations, um, such as associations with animals, like dangerous animals, like wolves and snakes. Um, not saying that all snakes are dangerous, of course, but um <laughs> So I, I got really intrigued by that idea and ended up writing both my term paper and The Witch's Heart uh, at the same time. So, uh, yeah, she was, uh, Angerboda was always intended to to kind of be more than one person to me, uh, just because it ended up being a really cool way to be able to write about the mythology from beginning to end by combining her uh, with a couple different women in the myths. When you when you were writing The Witch's Heart, um, how did you go about sort of forming how to tell the story in in this world um it was i kind of had to imagine what it would be like i guess um it, yeah, it's yeah. kind of it, it's interesting because in the myths like in the texts that we we have of the myths a lot of the times we are told what happens and we're just told and then this happened and then this happened um but we're not really told how people feel so this book ended up being like a, a character study almost of this this one singular character that I was really invested in um, and at the same time trying to like flesh out the motivations of other characters in the mythology at the same time. And again, that's just my take. Um, a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on why things happen in Norse mythology. So I kind of um, got the opportunity to just tell people uh, what my opinions are. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. So, um, what was that perspective for for you when you were not not so much reimagining, but telling your own story set in this world? Um, what what did you want to get across about these beings that someone couldn't really get from the Eddas? So it's really it's really interesting to me how often in uh, I guess in popular culture how and and this is due in part to the marvel movie which which i enjoy <laughs> i do enjoy the marvel movies but uh, a lot of the times the gods come off as heroes um and in the eddas you will see them do a lot of questionable things so i think that part of um part of my telling of the story is is telling it from the perspective of someone who was actually an enemy of the gods and who was wronged by the gods so i think for a lot of readers um who are used to seeing the gods as like Thor, the hero from the movie, um, you know, seeing him in the capacity that he appears in The Witch's Heart might be a little bit jarring. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, both him and Odin are pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, what is it like writing these characters? I mean, I suppose from the context of the myth, they're, they're gods, they're sort of supernatural beings and, you know, they experience time differently or time doesn't seem to bothered them quite as much and they have powers you know they uh, they die but sometimes they can survive you know terrible wounds and things like that and the like the, the like angabodas suffers has suffered three times over and had her heart taken out of her body when we kind of meet her in the beginning of the book so how do you i'm interested in how you write for a character like that that, that can go through something so that has sort of powers but is also vulnerable and how you write for for beings such as those? 
Uh, I mostly used my imagination. Like, uh, such bizarre things happen in the Norse myths. And uh, so it was kind of par for the course. Like, oh, she's dead and then she's not. No no spoilers, but, you know. Um, so part of that was trying to get in the mindset of, you know, what would what would a character like this be feeling and thinking with all these things happening around her? And so, so basically I wrote her as, you know, this, by combining her with these other women in the mythology, I made Angerboda just this phenomenally powerful character. And then I had to think like, okay, so I gave her all this power. What kind of person would she have to be to not use it to change the outcome of everything? Um, especially since she, during the parts of the book where she's not with her children, uh, she has a very skewed sense of time because she's very old and she's been around a long time and she's like, oh, I could have been sitting here by this river for a hundred years and I wouldn't have known it because time has no meaning to me. Um, so kind of trying to balance that while still making it like believable because she's, (sighs) Characters like like Ankerboda and even I would say like Cersei, I experienced this reading Cersei by Madeline Miller, which I absolutely love. Um, it's really it's it's difficult to write a character that you identify with, with who is so different than you, but you still can feel this kind of connection and sympathy for their struggle. Cause um Cersei in the is also like an, an immortal. So it's like how how can I um identify with this character? And so that's also one of my favorite books. <laughs> because uh, the vibe is so similar. Sorry, I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I was getting at, I mean, I, I know, like, of course, you're a writer, you use your, your imagination to tell these stories, but I'm always interested um, when when talking to creative people, storytellers, about sort of their relationship with the characters, how they sort of come alive in your mind. and 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 does it make you wonder about their nature that outside of a story i suppose what i'm getting at is did it, did it give you an insight into the nature of, of beings like this and 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 their nature when these stories were you know put down in the prose edda and the poetic edda and and probably told for a much longer time prior to that it was it was really interesting getting to to work with these characters like and think of them as characters because i had to be um a little bit i think sensitive in the way that i portrayed some of these um because to to some people they're not just characters they're actual deities like there there's you know neo-paganism there's people who actually do like are devoted to odin and thor and freya um and so i think it's really important and, and loki too um this is the whole thing with loki um where there are people who who just think of loki in one way and loki is so many things so part of what i had to do while i was writing this is keep that in mind um because you have odin and thor and freya you know being enemies of anger boda but they also do have redeeming qualities um you know i think by the end of the book odin and anger boda have kind of an understanding um and Freya also has this moment of sympathy near the end of the book for Angerboda, where they're kind of, they also have this moment of understanding. And even Thor uh, in the scene, <laughs> the the spoiler, the, the scene uh, near the end of part one where he features quite prominently, um, you know, also has a moment where he's, you know, hesitates. And he's mm. like, am I doing the right thing? So I thought it was really important to provide 
excuse me, to provide a more nuanced, um, you know, portrayal of the gods uh, for that reason. And it made me it made me feel a lot like closer to them and made me understand them a lot more as characters because we do see them as the heroes a lot. Uh, and I think that no no villain, especially in Norse mythology, is just pure evil. Like, I think there's no such thing. And I don't think the Vikings would have thought that way either. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean there. I think I, it's, it's more like um, Odin has an insatiable quest for knowledge. It seems at almost at any yes. cost. Right. I mean, with these characters, I mean, what, do you think that they were originally conceived as, as representations of, of, of forces? I mean, I, I know Thor is the god of thunder, and, um, but as, as someone who spends time with these characters who are deities, did you? Did you feel like you got more of an insight into their origins? Yeah, I, you know, I think I did. It's, uh, it's really, it's really interesting working with them, uh, in that way, in like a, a fictional way, because you, you do kind of see, um, how, you know, how they might have been thought of by people back in the Viking Age. So, you know, Odin was a, a patron of warriors and poets and and kings and thor was more like the god for the common man so um you know there's a lot of a lot of evidence that thor was widely widely worshipped by just like regular people especially near the end of the viking age um so that's just fascinating to me mm, and the something as as well is and it's something that happens that um the angaboda is part of prior to the events of the book is 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 a war between the the Aesir and the Vanir mm-hmm. and then those two groups of gods sort of become the Asgardians I mean do you think that war represented something on on earth um it it might have I've honestly never thought about that before but that that would that's a really interesting thought um that that could be reflective of some kind of struggle between maybe like different tribes uh, in the north, a long time ago, I know at least in Sweden there were two like different different groups, um, the Svear and the Jotar or Gotar, I think it would be in English. But um, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. I never thought about that. I'm fascinated by uh, Odin having Mimir's head yes, <laughs> and using yes. it to get knowledge. I just there's there's a part of me that just imagines that it's still somewhere underneath. Oslo or somewhere that like the Norwegian government has this huge artifact yeah. under, underground in a, in a secret facility like asking it questions and stuff but but no I, I that, that, that's something from from Norse mythology I'm, I'm always intrigued as to how, how those stories originally told Re- reading your book I definitely get a sense of your, your story it seems quite seasonal so you, there'll be periods of winter and and spring and summer and towards the end there's a a long winter mm-hmm. um and it made me think of if these that these stories were were seasonal themselves or maybe they were sort of short plays or something and people wore masks or to to, to tell them because you know like a, you could have a wolf mask and a, and a serpent mask and relatively straightforward representations of the of the gods I, that's that's just something that came to me re- reading your book and and how it was how it had that sort of relationship with the seasons Thanks. That was um, that was totally kind of intentional on my part, uh, just because I know that you know before the industrial age, people had a lot more of a connection, like with the land and the seasons. You know, like 
um, a, a bad winter or, you know, a dry summer could ruin your crops and then your livelihood. So it's, you know, um, yeah, I kind of tried to reflect that also in, um, in The Witch's Heart, just because I have also read a lot of the Icelandic sagas, um, which talk about, you know, the seasons and sometimes things will happen on farms. And uh, I really enjoy that literature as well. So thank you. Not at all. Um, when you were when you were sort of world building, how did you conceive the the nine realms in in your head? How, sort of uh, when you, when you imagined it. That is a great question, and that's part of the reason that I honestly didn't push for like a map of the nine worlds uh, at the beginning of the book, um, just because I think a lot of people envision them differently. Um, there's even like some debate on like, you know, whether like Helheim is like a separate world from Niflheim and, and stuff like that. So I was just, um, I tried to kind of leave it up to people's imagination, but in my mind, they're all kind of connected by Yggdrasil and they're, um, you know, like, uh, Yggdrasil as a means of travel is like an idea that's really fascinating to me. You know, we have the squirrel that goes up and down and the eagle at the top and the dragon at the bottom, but, um, we also have all these different worlds too that are connected um, so that's kind of how I envision it. Yeah, of course. And, and and something else as well, I find it sometimes hard to get out of the idea of a of a place being on a planet. Right. And so I was thinking, so are these places, I mean, is because in in The Witch's Heart, um, Angaboda travels between the realms, um, re- seems relatively straightforwardly. So they don't seem as separate as perhaps they might but um, when you were conceiving of them, are they, I, I don't know if it's even really an important question, but did you conceive of the nine realms as each being a planet or does it not matter? That's a great question. Um, I just kind of, I guess I visualized them uh, kind of the way, let's see, Kevin Crossley Holland's Norse myth retellings are uh, my formative ones. Um, and he has a map in that one. And it shows um, Midgard and Jotunheim being very close t- together. Um, and then, you know, in the myths, we're told that there's like a river that divides Jotunheim and Asgard, which like if a lot of the the maps that you'll see have like Asgard, Vanaheim, like on top, and then like Midgard, Jotunheim, and like some of the other worlds in the middle, and then um, Niflheim on the bottom or Muspelheim on the bottom. Um, so I kind of envision them as being a little bit like tiered, like, um, but just like different planes of existence, not necessarily like different planets, if that makes sense absolutely it's 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 just something i always i I always tend to wonder about in when uh talking about different realms is is how they work Uh, but no that's i i get i get what you mean there the norse cosmology is kind of weird too like we're not explicitly told a lot of things so there's a lot of guesswork going on um again it's one of those like to each their own kind of things something else that that is a big part of the Angaboda character is a use of a type of, of magic called side Sade? Yeah, Sade or uh, Old Norse Sather. What sort of research did you have to do for that to use it in your story? So we don't, we're never explicitly told what Sather is. Um, so that was another one where I had to just kind of use my imagination um, and, and kind of come up with, with, you know, my idea of what this particular type of magic is. And a lot of the research I did was like looking at different instances of where they talk about magic in the myths and sagas and see what word they use to describe this particular magic that's happening. Because there there's several like different words 
um, for different magic systems. And sometimes the translators just translate it as like magic, sorcery. So looking at the actual Old Norse word and seeing like, okay, but what what kind? Because, um, you know, Sather is thought to be like a, a, a magic associated with prophecy. Um, so that's kind of the route that I went. And there, Angerbode is like the form of, of practicing this ends up being like this almost like astral projection thing where she's like leaving her body and like traveling. And Odin does the same thing and Freya does the same thing. Um, but again, that's just my interpretation of of what that could be. Um, I am actually still researching Sather because there's a lot more out there about it that I did not know about. Um, for instance, Neil Price wrote a book called The Viking Way and it is huge and I'm still working my way through it. Um, but there is a lot of information there, especially about archeological finds, um, excuse me, about people who practice Sather in the Viking age. So we have like the staffs that they used. Um, there's illustrations of graves in the book. Like it's so cool. Wow, that that does sound excellent. I I really liked I liked how you this those parts in the book where where Angerboda uses Seder. It Like you say, it it did sound a lot like astral projection or or remote viewing. Um, that, mm-hmm. that was that's really interesting. Thank you. So I mean, with that kind of element to a character, how how do you? I suppose I mean you've just talked about how how it works, but I suppose how do you incorporate supernatural elements into a, a story such as this one, where where the characters are otherworldly themselves? Um, it it kind of almost came naturally to the story that you know these characters who, um, you know are are these like mythological beings like have the supernatural power so you know loki's a shapeshifter um a lot of the things that happen in the book uh that you know readers have been like what i'm like i didn't make this up this is part of the mythology like though i couldn't make up the horse thing that's the thing that really happens <laughs> that was excellent i really i really enjoyed that bit i anything anything where we get uh slept near involved is is always good <laughs> yes um but yeah, so uh you know, each each of them kind of has their their own uh ability. Um Scotty and Garrett are kind of not so much, but like they're supernaturally good at things. So Yeah. Um I kind of incorporated those abilities into their um their their personalities and you know, Scotty being the huntress and, and stuff like that. So, um, but, uh, we know so little about the goddesses. I'd love to continue to like explore them in the future. Um, cause they don't get a lot of screen time in the myths either. Hmm. Something that I think you do really well in the book is include the, these characters that seem very odd, such as Slepnir, and it doesn't seem unusual to have them in, in this story, uh, because their, their origins are explained and the, their the beings that are responsible for their parentage are are powerful too. In the early days of Valhalla, a craftsman came to visit. He offered to create a citadel around Asgard, which could keep out the giants who may attack from any direction. He claimed he could complete the fortification of Asgard in just three seasons, and for payment demanded that the goddess Freya be his bride and that he received the sun and the moon also. The gods, however, thought his choice of payment was steep, and negotiated that he would only be paid in full 
if he completed the wall in just one season, and that he received no help from any man. This was accepted with the condition that his stallion, Svadlfari, could help. The gods were unsure, but Loki convinced them that even with the help of his horse, the craftsman would not be able to uphold his end of the bargain, so Freya and the sun and the moon were not at risk at all. Work began on the first day of winter, yet it was the craftsman's huge stallion that did all the work, effortlessly hauling huge boulders. Construction of the citadel progressed swiftly, and it was so tall and strong that no enemy would be able to take Asgard. Three days before the winter was over, the gods sat down for council and discussed how they could avoid giving payment. They began to question who agreed to such terms in the first place, and the consensus was that Loki was to blame. He was ordered to obstruct the craftsmen from completing the last part of the citadel, so that the gods would not need to make payment. Otherwise, he would face violence and death. Loki swore an oath that he would stop the craftsmen and his horse from completing the citadel. That evening, a mare appeared from a nearby forest and neighed towards the stallion. She was in heat, and the stallion broke away from his work and ran away into the woods, following her. The craftsman was not happy that his stallion had got away. He became enraged when Svadlfari ran with the mare all night and the next day, and they could not finish the citadel in time. The gods, noticing his wrath, realised then that he was in fact a giant, and they had been well and truly duped. They called for Thor, who swung Mjolnir into the giant's head. The heavy blow killed him instantly, the force sending his body flying to Niflheim and cast tiny pieces of his skull across the Nine Realms. It then became clear that it was Loki who would stop the completion of the citadel. He disguised himself as the mare which Svadlfari had left the giant to be with, and had become pregnant with the stallion's foal. Loki later gave birth to a grey, eight-legged horse he called Slepnir. It was the best horse among gods and men, and so Loki gifted him to Odin. So yeah, I really did enjoy the the parts in in the witch's heart where we got to learn about how uh, Slepnir was conceived. And you're right, talking before about how there were these really unusual characters, and th- their nature is never really questioned. Um, they're they're quite fluid. Um, it's perfectly reasonable for someone to have turn into a horse and give birth to an eight-legged horse or have three children, two of which become gigantic creatures. I mean, do you think that when these stories were being put down in the prose edda and the poetic edda, that was, was, was simply because it was creative and imaginative and entertaining? Or do you think that there is something as well that hints at a at an understanding of the of the supernatural and and the nature of of otherworldliness uh i think it's a little of both uh you know the idea that um that these were just like great stories on top of being a, a belief system is really fascinating to me um so i i can't tell you if people in the viking age really thought that there was a, a giant wolf chained up somewhere and the question of 
or or a giant serpent at the bottom of the sea and uh the question of whether or not we're living in a pre or post Ragnarok world is up for debate um but yeah i i think i think it's a mix of both hmm that's really interesting i hadn't thought of that exactly being whether we're in a a pre or post Ragnarok world yeah it could be could be either couldn't it <laughs> yeah it's really interesting to think about <laughs> Especially the, with uh, Jormungandr, the Midgard serpent, the, the the concept of a of a creature like that being so large that it encircles the planet, you know, is it, in in one way it it doesn't make sense. It in terms of being a, a physical reality, but there is something about it, the the idea of of that being the case that on some in some way that's the case there is this serpent that is sort of has encircled the has encircled the planet not maybe not a a physical being but but a being nonetheless that that does exist i mean as you were writing the witch's heart um and and writing about characters like Gander and and fenrir to, to you i mean what would you say that, that their their true nature might be if there are beings like that in in some way so i'm i'm a fan of uh you know the idea of like misunderstood cryptids like uh you know these creatures that we might be scared of are actually like nice or just looking to belong and that's like one of my favorite like tropes um in storytelling and i think it's really interesting that the especially we're talking about like a wolf and a snake because these are creatures that um are dangerous to people like mm-hmm. in the wild for the most part. Um, whereas like you, I, I think that there's, when I was thinking about like, okay, why is Angerboda considered to be like this? A lot of the times she's either like portrayed as like a, this like fierce warrior queen or like a, a gross monster. And I'm like, so why is she maligned? Like, why is she the, the bad wife? Um, and I think that the, role that her children have to play in Ragnarok have a a lot to do with that. Um, And, you know, you don't see her giving birth to kittens or, you know, like nice animals. They're dangerous, dangerous animals that live in the woods in dangerous places Um, or, you know, almost like inhospitable territories in in the north, Uh, like Angerboda lives in, you know, this forbidding forest Um, because, you know, forests were dangerous to people back then too. I guess if you if you watch some horror movies, they're still dangerous to people. Um, and I mean, I guess in everyday life too as well, if you get lost. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I just, I think it's really interesting that, um, that her children were thought of this way. And that, um, you know, of all the animals you could have picked, like why these two? Or did they pick them? Is there something else going on there? Like... You know, how old are these stories? These are all questions I would love to know the answer to. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? I suppose it's it's how far back can knowledge be passed down? I think there's they've done some studies and it, and it seems like some stories go back a, a really long way. So perhaps there is that memory of a time when humans were living alongside big predators, such as large, larger wolves and things like that. Um, so yeah, that is a that is an interesting idea. It's, but something else as well is I, and I as a as a writer, this is a perfect thing to talk about. Is just the the nature of the imagination. I a lot of the time 
the imagination is seen as a as a sort of a faculty of the mind and and the imagination is is contained within our brain but what i tend to think of and and this connects to understanding the nature of the supernatural is that maybe that's not quite the case so like the imagination is something beyond that or at least it allows us to connect to something non-physical yeah like almost like the the cultural memory of you know these stories getting passed down um especially before they were actually written down so um because you know there's there's we think that the poems from the poetic era that were passed down orally are a lot older than uh, when they first got written down so um yeah i think there's a lot to be said about that as well i i suppose like, like you we're talking there um woods and forests and other places they were they were dangerous i mean it's nowadays we have you know with lots of lighting at night and and and, and lots of convenience the the world is a relatively safe place but back in the time when these stories were being written down it was it wasn't the case there was the world was a lot darker especially at night time and in, in the places where you know in in scandinavia and iceland it got yeah, there, were, there were periods of the year where it got it was dark most of the day so that must work on your imagination and that, that the things that you can't see in the darkness are you that must that must kind of yeah engage your imagination and and maybe even change your reality i think but what the, the things that you encounter i i i, I do wonder about that I, I i tend to think that in nowadays when people report seeing unusual creatures often it's so unusual that it it doesn't make sense that it's a, a flesh and blood creature as we know it but these people are seeing something and it and it feels like there there is a sort of a non-physical element to it an imaginal element to to these entities that people are, are encountering and i think one of the one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about with having written the witch's heart is that it it feels like the entities that people report seeing things like bigfoot lake monsters even things like the the men in black ufos all sorts of things they have this same quality that that they wouldn't stand out they they would they would be absolutely at place in a in in an imaginative story such as the one you've written but but take them out of that context and put them in the real world and they suddenly become strange and and well supernatural paranormal and people discount it and tell often dismiss the people that report seeing these things but if you use the context of the of the imagination and and and, and the imagination as a, as a space where something can live it it feels like there's there's that potential there for a partway explanation for what's what's going on yeah definitely that's a that's a really good point um i think you know uh i think we've kind of lost our imagination a little bit you know like you said like when people report these sightings you know it's almost it's not like uh people think that people don't believe it when they report it um just like you watch like ghost hunting videos and people be like oh no that's that's made up that's fake like i i feel like like writing a story like this i i i had to imagine a lot of things um because i i tried to tell it in such a way that it's like oh and then this happened and you know the the seasons change and like these these kind of like mundane things are happening like alongside the supernatural um 
and especially like at the end where there's kind of I don't I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't read the book but um you know the idea that these these beings are are still around uh even after all this time and are still kind of watching over us or looking out for us um yeah that no but that's a really good point hmm. writing the book how did that affect your everyday life whenever i see crows i or they're not ravens but i i tend to think maybe they're spying on me maybe they've been sent to to kind of watch watch me for some reason i don't know why that would be the case um at all but writing writing the your story and did, did it did it affect your day-to-day life in terms of having these characters in your head all this time uh sort of um i i agree with the it's really interesting how often you see two ravens together isn't it like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah makes you wonder yeah. uh you know if it's uh maybe that's something that the people who who you know thought about odin way back when uh noticed but or you know maybe maybe it is like who 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 is to say um but i guess in the way that it affected my everyday life is just um it just made me made me think a lot um and i especially since i'm a viking reenactor i do viking age living history uh I get to think a lot about um, what life might have been like back then and the people who uh, told these stories. So writing the book kind of made me um, really consider what life might have been like back then and what these particular deities might have meant to people in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Mm. Are there deities that mean more to you than others? Is there, some, is there a deity that, that has a place in, in your life now? Um, I, so, you know, I, I wrote the book out of, uh, you know, attachment to Angerboda, but by the end, uh, Hell and Scotty had really, I'd really felt very close to them. And I felt like I understood them in a way that I hadn't before I wrote the book. Um, and I'm continuing to explore, uh, both of them in particular and my relationship with them. So, um, yeah, I guess that's one of the outcomes <laughs> of the story. No, that's, that's, that sounds really interesting. In the acknowledgments, you talk about your grandfather. Do you, you have Swedish ancestry? Yes. He, 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 and um, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, it's it, the intersection between like religion and folklore has always fascinated me. I mean, my grandfather was a man who went to church every Sunday for you know almost his whole life, and then to hear him say near the end of his life, after we were we were discussing Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, actually. Um, because I had given it to him as a gift and he read it and you know to have him say like you know Thor Odin those guys like I think they're still around like it was just absolutely like mind-boggling to me to hear that from him and it was really like an interesting like moment in my life where I started thinking about um, you know because Scandinavia uh, Scandinavian countries converted to Christianity like you know like a thousand years ago and yet there's still like these folkloric traditions, like leaving porridge out for the Norns, which I think, um, you know, faded out in Norway in like the 18th century. So like centuries and centuries after the conversion, um, the idea that like folklore and religion can coexist alongside each other and not um, like are like contradict each other or like be seen as blasphemous is like super interesting to me. Sorry, you mm. brought up my grandpa and that's the first thing I thought of. So sorry for that tangent. <laughs> No, no, not at all. No, I was I, I was going to ask you about that because you you mentioned that in the in the acknowledgments what 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 he said about the 
them still being around. So I, I really, really wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it, it's hard not to read about these characters and, and, and imagine if they are still around. I know that the, the idea of a trickster is something that's very, it's very popular. It's a very popular idea in paranormal research. Um, the, and, you know, things like high strangeness and the, the weird encounters that people have and, you know, the beings like the men in black and any, any experience where a person's had where everything's just become very unusual. And uh, it, make, it would make sense for a character like Loki to be able to do that if he was still around. <laughs> Right, absolutely. And I, I I know a lot of uh Loki devotees or Lokians who would probably agree with you. But I suppose as well, I mean, do gods even really die? What is it? What is death to a, a god? You know, it's I suppose the the only reason they would die is because it's mentioned in a story that they're in. But if they I suppose if they transcend that, if they they're not they're not beings like you or I as we were talking about before if they are sort of beings from a imaginal realm then they're just they're always there aren't they i suppose right like the fact that the norse gods die at the end uh, is has always been fascinating to me because how often do you hear that like oh and just the whole pantheon just with a couple of exceptions like the younger generation of of gods but um yeah, that's, that's always been super interesting. Like the fallibility of the Norse pantheon in general is just so intriguing. No, absolutely. But it's, it's so hard to, sometimes I find when I'm trying to get my head around things, it's so hard to jailbreak yourself from linear time and right. the, the rules the rules of the universe, because it feels like these beings <laughs> yep. have played by different rules and aren't affected by the, the things that here on, here on Midgard we are. <laughs> We're bound, we're, right. we're bound by these rules and it's hard. To, I find it hard to get my head around. I, I love trying to and usually failing, but yeah. Um. Yeah, same. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in terms of your interest in the, in, in the supernatural itself, uh, what are you talking earlier about, about cryptids? What, what else in, intrigues you in general that has a sort of supernatural paranormal tinge? Uh, I've always, like, since I was a kid, I've been fascinated with the, you know, Area 51 aliens um, and also cryptids, Bigfoot. <laughs> I, I live in the Midwest um, and of the United States and, you know, there's there's a lot of emptiness out here and that's really, I mean, not emptiness, there's, there's cornfields, but there's not a whole lot of people. So um, just the idea of, like, this this almost, like, liminal space is very fascinating to me. Um, like I've heard heard jokes about like, you know, like Midwestern gas stations, like airports are liminal spaces where like anything could happen because like it, it's a place where like not many people stay for long. They're just kind of passing through. And that's always really intrigued me. So uh, I might probably write something about that one day. I think that would be great because there's some really interesting cases in ufology that happen in that area. I mean, Mothman in mm-hmm. Point Pleasant, Yep, that's very, that fascinates me about the the true nature of that. Um, the Flatwoods monster as well. That's just such a cool looking, weird creature, and that whole um, that era, that sort of fifties, early sixties era of of contactees having weird experiences, often like in a diner or a rest stop. That, right. There's there's something about that that I just find fascinating, and and does 
it does make me think of, of like you were saying, like it's this liminal place where the imaginal can sort of push through and, and, and beings can come through and maybe, maybe just like mess around with us mortals. I don't know something about it. <laughs> right. It's like that. That's always been like super fascinating to me. Just, just the idea that there is, is more beyond what we see every day. And I think that that's why that that's always aliens and, and cryptids have always fascinated me so much. Um, and liminal spaces again, as, as places where anything could happen, like that maybe seem ordinary, but are not. Um, so I, I just think that's really cool. No, no, uh, same here. Absolutely. So what's, what's next for you in terms of a, of a writing project now that the witch's heart is, is out and doing really well and, um, I so I'm still I'm still staying in the realm of Norse and Viking Age uh, fiction, um, but I, I can't necessarily talk about what's up next. I hope that I'll be able to share it soon. But uh, yeah, there's a there, there's more coming. Brilliant. Well, I, I I definitely look forward to it. Thank you so much. Well, Genevieve, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and, and the witch's heart and, and your work, how best do they do that? Uh, I am most active on Instagram at Jen Gornacek. Um, same thing on Twitter at Jen Gornacek. I have a contact form on my website, GenevieveGornacek.com. And I recently got a TikTok. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, but it's <laughs> at Jen Gornacek there as well. Brilliant. Well, I'll I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks, Genevieve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Genevieve. I think there's a lot to be gained from talking with writers who create stories that include supernatural characters about the nature of those beings and the worlds they inhabit. The relationship between fiction and reality is a really interesting one and definitely something I'd like to explore more on the podcast. I heartily recommend getting a copy of The Witch's Heart if you enjoyed this episode. And it'd make a great Christmas present too, or a gift in general for any of your friends who are fans of Norse mythology. Please also consider rating the episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.